Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard, have heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, a few weeks ago, I was chatting to somebody in the congregation here about his new job, and he told me about a conversation that he had uh, with some people uh, on, at his job just a few days before we spoke. He'd been chatting to them uh, about different ideas about religion, and there was a whole bunch of different ideas reflected in the room. Uh, there was a Muslim guy, an agnostic, uh, an atheist, and it was clear they all had different religious worldviews. Uh, but what my friend said was particularly weird was he got this sense that all of them were trying to persuade each other of their own particular view. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that. I wonder what you would say if you were trying to persuade that group of people about Jesus. What would you do if you were faced with that situation tomorrow? What would you say? We've been looking at the book of Acts over the course of the last few weeks. Indeed, it's a book we've visited a few times over the last few years, and it's filled with this brilliant history of how the good news of Jesus spread around the world after Jesus rose from the dead. I think we found it to be deeply relevant as we've looked at it. 
But if I can say this, I think today's passage is especially relevant. Uh, Up until this point, Paul has been talking particularly to people who are Jewish, uh, so-called God-fearers, people with some kind of familiarity with the message of the Bible. But the exciting development we've had more recently is that he started to go out to the nations, to non-Jewish people, people who've got no idea what the Bible says. And tonight we actually get to hear a slightly more extended version of what he says to them, uh, the message that he proclaimed to people who didn't know the Bible, maybe the Muslims, agnostics, and atheists of his day. What did he say to those who had no idea about Christianity? None of the building blocks that we might want to have put in place. Can you see, this is a really useful place for us to be as we think about how we might communicate with others in a similar position. And even if you're here as someone who's got no previous knowledge of Jesus, well, what a good place for us to start uh, to see what the Apostle Paul would say to you. Indeed, that's the kind of dilemma that we get set up in the opening verses. How should we speak to, and I've put on the handout, how should we speak to blank, which I'll come back to in just a moment. But let me pick up the reading from the beginning, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Do you see this range of people in that passage? You've still got Jewish people and devout persons, maybe God-fearers, those who might have known their Bibles a bit. But then you've got these philosophers as well. Uh, Right at the um, end of that paragraph, verse 21, they're summed up as all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there. Uh, So big range of people, which is why I left it blank. How should we speak to, well, basically anyone? How should we speak to anyone? I do think there's two particular things Luke wants us to see about this crowd of people. Uh, Firstly, they're foreigners. Uh, That's the word that Luke uses in verse 21. But it's also the way that they see him. Uh, Look at verse 18, halfway through. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. He's foreign to them. Or verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. You see, these guys, they didn't know the kind of thing that Paul was talking about. They hadn't heard that sort of thing before. It was foreign to them. I tend to think of it as a unique modern problem that people don't know their Bibles very well. Here we are in the 21st century and people don't know their Bibles anymore. When actually, that's an age-old problem. From the very moment that Jesus rose from the dead, the gospel went out to people who did not know the Bible. The other thing that we're told about them is that they are knowledge people. Verse 21 says that they would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Now, that might just be a criticism of their unwillingness to go out and get a job. But I think more likely it's presenting them as a kind of experts in philosophy. Now, they call Paul a babbler, someone who loves to um, gather ideas, I think, a kind of magpie for ideas. But really, that's them. They're experienced in thinking. They are the intellectual elite. We get this particular focus in verse 18 on the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And I know what you're thinking. I didn't know either. I had to look it up. Uh, Epicureans were those who were interested in the pursuit of happiness and contentment. 
especially through fine food and drink. They believed that there were gods, but that they weren't very interested in us. And then Stoics were, well, in a sense, they were kind of the other side of the coin, not very interested in pleasure or pain, but simply in logic and discipline. And I'm told these were two big schools in Greek thoughts, so they're kind of representative of intellectual magpies, people who love to pick up on ideas and knowledge. And that's what they want when they present it with Paul. Verse 19 says, oh, may we know what this new teaching is. Or verse 20, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Here are the big players on the intellectual scene, magpies for ideas. But the gospel is foreign to them. What is Paul going to say to people like that? Some of you arriving in London, maybe a free new job or new studies, and you're still trying to work out when you're going to mention you're a Christian. But what about when you have to talk to magpies for ideas about Jesus? What about when you have to talk to people who are completely foreign to the gospel, have never encountered it before? What are you going to say to them? I think of a book group that I'm a part of, made up of some of the most intelligent, well-read people I know. They're magpies for ideas. But actually, they know very little of what the Bible says. What should I say to them? The Christian message feels a little bit like this ancient key for St. Helens. I was rooting around downstairs and found this. That's a whopper, isn't it? They knew how to make keys back in the day, didn't they? It doesn't work anymore, does it? You might have noticed that the locks in St. Helens are not that big. It's not that useful anymore. We need something a bit more up-to-date, something more suited to modern locks. And we wonder, don't we, is it the same with the gospel? The gospel, is it really going to open any doors anymore? When we're surrounded by intellectual magpies and those who know nothing of the Bible, maybe we need something that is better suited to modern sensibilities. Well, on the contrary, Luke wants us to have confidence in the same old story. Point two on the handout, have confidence in the same word about Jesus. Let me read from verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul gets hauled up in front of the Areopagus, which was this kind of key debating arena of the day. And on this particular day, the top item on the agenda was Paul's gospel. But as Paul speaks, it becomes clear that these foreigners to the Bible, these magpies for ideas, they're they're not really as intimidating as we might think they are. He starts with what one person has called an accusation. Verse 22, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, which isn't a compliment. Uh, Apparently flattery would have not gone down very well in the Areopagus anyway. But this is the very thing that provoked Paul at the beginning of the passage. At the beginning, he was provoked about their idolatry, and now he takes it to them. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You're very superstitious, Athens. On my way here, I just passed that idol that you've got to an unknown God. Seriously, guys. Well, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he's picking up on that language of knowing. We get it a few times in the passage, but turns it to a rebuke. What essentially he says is you're wrong about God and you should know it. 
take, for example, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he, he needed everything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You think God needs to be served in temples? God's the creator of everything. What's wrong with you? It's ludicrous, isn't it, to think that God is sort of sat somewhere desperate for someone to give him a home, that he's in heaven because he's not found a house to live in yet and we've got to build him something. He's the one who gave you life, who gave you that last breath, who gives you everything. What do you think he needs from us? Or verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him, yet he's not actually far from each one of us. Do you think that God is unknowable, Athens? Do you think you can't find him? God made us. He placed us in order that we might find out about him. The whole Bible testifies to the fact that we can see in creation the existence of a personal creator. We can know that a personal, powerful God exists who wants relationship with us. He's left his fingerprints everywhere. As Psalm 19 puts it, the heavens declare the glory of God. He's not served in temples. He's not unknowable. And as Paul goes on to show, their poets show they already knew it. Verse 29, in, uh, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You can check out the footnotes if you want to see where those poems, those quotes come from. But Paul is using these poets to show that they already know this stuff. You think he's served in temples, but we're his offspring. You think he's unknowable, but in him we live and move and have our being. Your own thinkers reveal that you're wrong. It's easy to think that some people are intellectually superior, that they're above hearing the gospel, that they need something more intelligent than what we've got here. Maybe you're someone looking into the claims of Jesus, and that's what you think about yourself. Though maybe you wouldn't put it like that. None of this primitive stuff about Jesus and the resurrection, thank you very much. Paul's sermon shows that the intellectual elite are not all that. No, you're wrong about God, and you should have realized that already. Even those who know nothing about the Bible are still surrounded by a creation that proclaims the majesty and power of God. Agnostics will claim that God is unknowable, all the while ignoring his fingerprints all around the world. Humanists will claim to trust in humanity rather than the divine, ignoring the fact that the majority of humans have recognized that there really is a God. Still others will accept the existence of a higher power and yet mold him into some kind of pet according to their own imagination. Oh yes, I think that there's a higher power. He's very powerful, but I like to think of him as and then create some pet version of God's. No, says Paul, as much to London as to Athens, we ought not, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
And I'm aware there might be some here who feel like they are in the firing line at the moment. And let me say, every week we're joined by those who are looking in on the claims of Jesus. And if that's you, I'm really glad that you've joined us. If you think I've misrepresented you at any point, would you come and tell me afterwards? I want to do better. I want to represent things fairly. But I do actually think that Paul has got you in his firing line here. We ought not to think that the divine being is an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If that's what you think God is, Paul says you're wrong and you should know it really. And it means that whoever you are, whether you've read the Bible before or not, well, we all need to hear the same word about Jesus, which is why Paul proclaims the same gospel word to them. Jesus is Lord. Repent. Look again at verse 29. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people, all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Up until now, God has ignored their ignorance. He's overlooked it. That is, we will answer for our rejection of God, but judgment day has not come yet. God has been patient. He's been, well, he's not brought it all to a head yet. But things are not going to stay like that. Jesus has risen from the dead. And it's proof to all that he is Lord of all the earth. The one who will judge the world in righteousness. Jesus is Lord and his judgment day is coming. So it's time to repent. It's time now to turn around. It's time to turn to him. As William, our senior minister, said a few weeks ago, the good news of Jesus is a command to repent and follow Jesus as your king. Every sermon in Acts has basically said the same thing, and it's the same thing again here. This summary of Paul's sermon, it's only brief. It's not designed to say everything you would want to say. This same word about Jesus is actually news of forgiveness, of arms open in welcome of arms spread on the cross. If you've not heard the good news of Jesus as a thinking adult, please would you come back and find out more about it. Would you come to our small groups on Wednesdays and be confronted with Jesus and find out what good news he has to offer? But what the author, Luke, does here is, what he does include is designed to give us confidence in that news, to work with everyone, The intellectual elite, the people who've never heard the Bible, they're not in some way above hearing the gospel. They are wrong about God, and they need the same news that we all do. Jesus is Lord. Repent. It's the same gospel word for all. It's not like this ancient key, which doesn't open any doors anymore. It's much more like this key, which I found. I'm not normally allowed this key. This is a skeleton key for all of the keys at doors in St. Helens. I think I'm not allowed it because the first thing that pops into my head when I got it was, what havoc can I wreak with this key? Is William in his office and can I lock him in? He wasn't, so unfortunately he's not locked in. But it's much more like that skeleton key, isn't it? Something that opens any door. And not an ancient thing that doesn't work anymore, but the same key for all, the same word 
for all. This is crucial for us as we think about what we want to be as a church. Uh, There's lots of literature out there about how we can be the most relevant church. In a city like London, it would be easy to think that we've got to find a message to proclaim that is in some way adjusted for the best and the brightest. I mentioned earlier that lots of us are arriving in London. Maybe you're looking for a church, thinking about what sort of church you want to join, what sort of church you could bring people to. Well, this is the sort of place that we need to be, one that has confidence in the same word about Jesus. Not one that tries to adjust it to suit modern sensibilities, but one that keeps speaking the same story. And of course, if that's what we want to be as a church, then it's what we need to be as individuals too. When you're talking to your course mates or your colleagues, maybe the most intelligent, well-read people you know People who may not know anything of what the Bible actually says have confidence in the same word of Jesus. It's easy to be intimidated, to think that the gospel is too foreign to them, too simple to them, too ancient, but it is the same key for all that opens all the doors. And I guess many of us aren't that tempted to change the message, but are we confident in it? Do we believe that it can work in real life with the people we know? I think actually there's lots of Christians, especially those who work in the university setting, who think that this on its own is not quite enough. That we need to, if we're going to reach a modern audience, we need to spend longer unpacking the ideas of our culture before we're ready to open the Bible. That if we're to introduce people to Jesus, we need to confront them with the the gospel, but also connect with particular things that the culture says. Yes, we need to call people out, but also we need to find out what they're hoping for and show that the news of Jesus is exactly what they're after. Sometimes called subversive fulfillment. Subvert and fulfill. Confront and connect. Maybe you've heard ideas like that before. After all, isn't that what Paul is doing here? Well, of course, it is important to listen to those around us to think about how our words are going to be understood, to talk to people as real people and not just recipients of our monologues. I'm sorry about that. It's an awkward thing for me to say 20 minutes into a talk, isn't it? But actually, we do want to be those who listen. And there's lots that's very helpful in this idea of subversive fulfillment. It reminds us that the gospel does connect to real life, that it is brilliant news that genuinely fulfills so much of what the world is hoping for. But over the last 10 years that I've been involved in student ministry, I've seen problems develop when you start by asking what questions are the culture asking. To begin with, I think it makes people feel quite nervous about beginning a conversation in the first place. If you have to understand the culture before you can talk about Jesus, well, you'll find it hard to ever begin. More importantly, I think it can leave people unconfident about this word that we have. At this very moment that Luke, our author, wants us to have confidence in the word, we can think, oh, well, it's not quite enough. I need something else first. Worst of all, some of those who think we need to start by asking questions of our culture will end up changing the message they proclaim in order to fit with those questions. For example, lots of students arriving in London at the moment, they're quite lonely, And so Christian unions often want to give talks on loneliness and how the gospel answers it. I was asked to give a talk just like that very recently. But I've heard of somebody giving that talk and basically saying Jesus came to earth 
and became lonely so that you wouldn't have to be lonely anymore. Well, there's lots we could say on that. I wish we had longer, but let's be clear. While the gospel does offer a wonderful community, and being part of the church here, I hope, would give you a taste of that, the gospel message is deeper and richer and more glorious than that. It is better by far. If we let the questions the world is asking set the agenda, we'll end up communicating a diluted, fragile gospel. We'll stop proclaiming the lordship of Jesus and we'll overlook this skeleton key he has given us. When you're working out what to say, don't start by asking what questions is the culture asking. Start by thinking about the gospel message Jesus has given us, the word that we have been given. That's after all what Paul does here, isn't it? Look at verse 18. Right at the beginning, before even he's done the sermon we've been studying, end of verse 18, he had been preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's where he started. And so he continued in conversation with them and he found points of connection, yet that's what he seems to be doing later. But even then, he's still following an agenda set by God in the Bible and applying it to those to whom he was speaking. Now, there's a table on the handout if you want to follow up how the Bible had set the agenda all along. Crucially, Paul landed in the same place that he started, at the heart of his message, Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus is Lord. Repent. Paul's confidence was in this same word about Jesus that he had preached everywhere else. And ours should be too. As we talk to people, we'll see places that that message connects with their real lives. I'm not saying we shouldn't connect it to cultures around us. Of course not. And I'm not saying it's always done with the Bible physically open. After all, for the last 2,000 years, that wouldn't have been possible for most of it. But this passage is designed to give us confidence in the same word about Jesus. This same old story is what is going to work in your office and your lecture theatre tomorrow. And to prove that, last point in the handout, that's where Luke finishes. The word will prevail mightily. Let me read from verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. I don't know what sort of response you'd expect Paul to get from this kind of sermon. Of course, there was mockery, cynicism. Jesus, Paul, a resurrection, really? No, not likely. We're cleverer than that. I think that's the response lots of us expect. But I wonder how many of us expect that second one. We will hear you again about this. Let me confess, I, I find it hard to believe that I'll get that one very often. I'm doubtful of it, but of course it happens all the time. Research in the UK that's been released, I think, in the last few months, suggests that one in three people that you engage in a conversation with about Jesus will want to hear more. Do you expect it to be as much as one in three? Of course, really. Jesus, he's so compelling, isn't he? We know that. We have found him compelling. Why wouldn't we expect other people to find the same? Yes, some will mock, but others are going to be interested. And still others. Well, look at verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom... Also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman, from, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
Because you see, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the same old story unlocks their hearts and they believed. Dionysius and Damaris and others whom we'll meet in glory. Paul's confidence in the same old story. It was well-founded and it bore fruit. Uh, This is how one scholar puts it. The implication of these verses is that preaching Jesus and the resurrection to such an audience is the way forward. Despite the cynicism this arouses, in both Jewish and Gentile contexts, it is the word by which God grows the church. Indeed, as Luke finishes this section in Acts, I've put a reference there for 19 verse 20, where Luke finishes the section saying, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Even with those who were foreign to the gospel, even these intellectually elite magpies for ideas, even with your colleague, your friend, the person living next door to you, Earlier, I mentioned a guy I was chatting to in the congregation, having a conversation with work colleagues about their different beliefs. A Muslim guy, an agnostic, an atheist. And while he wasn't thinking about Acts 17, what he did end up saying to them could have been almost what Paul wrote here, what Paul spoke here, that we are wrong. We're in the wrong before God. That there's a problem, that we're facing the judgment of God. And as part of that conversation, he said to them, well, if you turn to Jesus, you can be saved. I was really grateful that he mentioned to me this conversation that he'd had with those people, partly because I'd been thinking about Acts 17 and I was really grateful for the illustration, but partly because it reminded me how much more confident he is than I am that this is a word that will work. A Muslim guy, an agnostic, and and an atheist? Are they really going to be persuaded by this? I look at my book group, some of the most intelligent and well-read people I know, and who know little or nothing about what the Bible really says. What is going to reach them? How are they going to discover the wonder of Jesus? Well, there is one gospel, one skeleton key. And some will mock, but some will be interested to hear more. And some, some will really, they really will turn. Because this is the word that prevails mightily. Why don't I pray that we would be those who believe that. Thank you, our Father, for your wonderful gospel word to us. We praise you for the way that it confronts us. Thank you for showing us where we're wrong. But we praise you also that it speaks words of hope to us. How we pray that in your kindness you would give us confidence in this word. For those of us who aren't trusting it, we pray that we would see the wonder of the Lord Jesus and turn to him. And for the rest of us, please would you give us great surety, great assurance and confidence that this is the word to take out to London and to the ends of the earth. That many might come to submit to the lordship of your King Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.